Section 63 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 2 by James Boswell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. We stopped at Stratford-upon-Avon and drank tea and coffee, and it pleased me to be with him upon the classic ground of Shakespeare's native place. He spoke slightingly of Dyer's fleece. Footnote. Johnson works volume eight, page four hundred six, tells the following ludicrous story of the fleece. Dodsley, the bookseller, was one day mentioning it to a critical visitor with more expectation of success than the other could easily admit. In the conversation, the author's age was asked, and being represented as advanced in life, he will, said the critic be buried in woollen to encourage the trade in wool an act was passed requiring the dead to be buried in woollen burke refers to this when he says of lord chatham who was swathed in flannel owing to the gout like a true obeyer of the laws he will be buried in woollen burke's correspondence hawkins life page two three one says a portrait of Samuel Dyer was painted by Sir Joshua, and from it a mezzo tinto was scraped, the print whereof, as he was little known, sold only to his friends. A singular use was made of it. Bell, the publisher of The English Poets, caused an engraving to be made from it and prefixed it to the poems of Mr. John Dyer. End of footnote. The subject, sir, cannot be made poetical. How can a man write poetically of surges and druggets? Yet you will hear many people talk to you gravely of that excellent poem, The Fleece. Having talked of Granger's sugar cane, I mentioned to him Mr. Langton's having told me that this poem, when read in manuscript at Sir Joshua Reynolds's, had made all the assembled wits burst into a laugh when, after much blank verse pomp, the poet began a new paragraph thus. Now, muse, let us sing of rats. <laughs> and what increased the ridicule was that one of the company, who slyly overlooked the reader, perceived that the word had been originally mice, and had been altered to rats as more dignified. Footnote. Such is this little laughable incident which has been often related. Dr. Percy, the Bishop of Dromore, who was an intimate friend of Dr. Granger and has a particular regard for his memory, has communicated to me the following explanation. The passage in question was originally not liable to such a perversion, for the author having occasion in that part of his work to mention the havoc made by rats and mice, had introduced the subject in a kind of mock heroic, and a parody of Homer's Battle of the Frogs and Mice, invoking the muse of the old Grecian bard in an elegant and well-turned manner. In that state I had seen it, but afterwards unknown to me and other friends, he had been persuaded, contrary to his own better judgment, to alter it so as to produce the unlucky effect above mentioned. 
the above was written by the bishop when he had not the poem itself to recur to and though the account given was true of it at one period yet as dr granger afterwards altered the passage in question the remarks in the text do not now apply to the printed poem the bishop gives this character of dr granger he was not only a man of genius and learning but he had many excellent virtues being one of the most generous friendly and benevolent men i ever knew Bustle, and a footnote. this passage does not appear in the printed work dr granger or some of his friends it should seem having become sensible that introducing even rats in a grave poem might be liable to banter he however could not bring himself to relinquish the idea for they are thus in a still more ludicrous manner periphrastically exhibited in his poem as it now stands nor with less waste the whiskered vermin race a countless clan despoil the lowland cane johnson said that dr granger was an agreeable man a man who would do any good that was in his power his translation of tibulus he thought was very well done but the sugar-cane a poem did not please him footnote dr johnson said to me percy sir was angry with me for laughing at the sugar-cane for he had a mind to make a great thing of granger's rats boswell johnson helped percy in writing a review of this poem in seventeen sixty four end of footnote but the sugar-cane a poem did not please him for he exclaimed what could he make of a sugar-cane one might as well write the parsley bed a poem or the cabbage garden a poem boswell you must then pickle your cabbage with the sal atticum johnson you know there is already the hop garden a poem footnote in poems by christopher smart one line may serve as a sample of the whole poem writing of bacchus god of hops the poet says tis he shall generate the buxom beer End of footnote. and i think one could say a great deal about cabbage the poem might begin with the advantages of civilised society over a rude state exemplified by the scotch who had no cabbages till oliver cromwell's soldiers introduced them and one might thus show how arts are propagated by conquest as they were by the roman arms he seemed to be much diverted with the fertility of his own fancy i told him that i had heard dr percy was writing the history of the wolf in great britain johnson the wolf sir why the wolf why does he not write of the bear which we had formerly nay it is said we had the beaver or why does he not write of the grey rat the hanover rat as it is called because it is said to have come into this country about the time that the family of hanover came i should like to see the history of the grey rat by thomas percy d d chaplain in ordinary to his majesty laughing immoderately boswell i am afraid a court chaplain could not decently write of the grey rat 
Johnson, sir, he need not give it the name of the Hanover Rat. Thus could he indulge a luxuriant sport of imagination when talking of a friend whom he loved and esteemed. He mentioned to me the singular history of an ingenious acquaintance. He had practised physic in various situations with no great emolument. A West India gentleman, whom he delighted by his conversation, gave him a bond for a handsome annuity during his life, on the condition of his accompanying him to the West Indies and living with him there for two years. He accordingly embarked with the gentleman, but upon the voyage fell in love with a young woman who happened to be one of the passengers, and married the wench. From the imprudence of his disposition he quarrelled with the gentleman, and declared he would have no connection with him, so he forfeited the annuity. He settled as a physician in one of the Leeward Islands. A man was sent out to him merely to compound his medicines. This fellow set up as a rival to him in his practice of physic, and got so much the better of him in the opinion of the people of the island that he carried away all the business, upon which he returned to England and soon after died. On Friday, March the 22nd, having set out early from Henley, footnote, Henley in Arden, 13 miles from Birmingham, end of footnote, where we had lain the preceding night, we arrived at Birmingham about nine o'clock, and after breakfast went to call on his old schoolfellow, Mr. Hector. Footnote. Mr. Hector's house was in the square, now known as the Old Square. It afterwards formed a part of the Stork Hotel, but it was pulled down when Corporation Street was made. A marble tablet had been placed on the house at the suggestion of the late Mr. George Dawson, marking the spot where Edmund Hector was the host, Samuel Johnson the guest. This tablet, together with the wainscoting, the door and the mantelpiece of one of the rooms, was set up in Aston Hall at the Johnson Centenary, in a room that is to be known as Dr. Johnson's room. End footnote. A very stupid maid, who opened the door, told us that her master was gone out, he was gone to the country, she could not tell when he would return. In short, she gave us a miserable reception, and Johnson observed, she would have behaved no better to people who wanted him in the way of his profession. He said to her, my name is Johnson, tell him I called. Will you remember the name? She answered with rustic simplicity in the Warwickshire pronunciation, I don't understand you, sir. Blockhead, said he, I'll write. I never heard the word blockhead applied to a woman before, though I did not see why it should not, where there is evident occasion for it. Footnote. My worthy friend Mr. Langton, to whom I am under innumerable obligations in the course of my Johnsonian history, has furnished me with a droll illustration about this question. An honest carpenter, after giving some anecdote in his presence of the ill-treatment which he had received from a clergyman's wife who was a noted termagant, and whom he accused of unjust dealing in some transaction with him, added, I took care to let her know what I thought of her. 
and being asked what did you say answered i told her she was a scoundrel boswell End of footnote. he however made another attempt to make her understand him and roared loud in her ear johnson and then she catched the sound we next called on mr lloyd one of the people called quakers he too was not at home but mrs lloyd was and received us courteously and asked us to dinner johnson said to me after the uncertainty of all human things at hector's this invitation came very well we walked about the town and he was pleased to see it increasing i talked of legitimation by subsequent marriage which obtained in the roman law and still obtains in the law of scotland johnson i think it a bad thing because the chastity of women being of the utmost importance as all property depends upon it they who forfeit it should not have any possibility of being restored to good character nor should the children by an illicit connection attain the full right of lawful children by the posterior consent of the offending parties his opinion upon this subject deserves consideration upon his principle there may at times be a hardship and seemingly a strange one upon individuals but the general good of society is better secured and after all it is unreasonable in an individual to repine that he has not the advantage of a state which is made different from his own by the social institution under which he is born a woman does not complain that her brother who is younger than her gets their common father's estate why then should a natural son complain when a younger brother by the same parents lawfully begotten gets it the operation of law is similar in both cases besides an illegitimate son who has a younger legitimate brother by the same father and mother has no stronger claim to the father's estate than if that legitimate brother had only the same father from whom alone the estate descends mr lloyd joined us in the street and in a little while we met friend hector as mr lloyd called him it gave me pleasure to observe the joy which johnson and he expressed on seeing each other again mr lloyd and i left them together while he obligingly showed me some of the manufactures of this very curious assemblage of artifices we all met at dinner at mr lloyd's where we were entertained with great hospitality mr and mrs lloyd had been married the same year with their majesties and like them had been blessed with a numerous family of fine children their numbers being exactly the same johnson said marriage is the best state for a man in general and every man is a worse man in proportion as he is unfit for the married state i have always loved the simplicity of manners and the spiritual mindedness of the quakers in talking with mr lloyd i observed that the essential part of religion was piety a devout intercourse with the divinity and that many a man was a quaker without knowing it 
as dr johnson had said to me in the morning while we walked together that he liked individuals among the quakers but not the sect when we were at mr lloyd's i kept clear of introducing any questions concerning the peculiarities of their faith but i having asked to look at baskerville's edition of barclay's apology johnson laid hold of it and the chapter on baptism happening to open johnson remarked he says there is neither precept nor practice for baptism in the scriptures that is false here he was the aggressor by no means in a gentle manner and the good quakers had the advantage of him for he had read negligently and had not observed that barclay speaks of infant baptism Footnote. as to the baptism of infants it is a mere human tradition for which neither precept nor practice is to be found in all the scripture barclay's apology proposition twelve and a footnote which they calmly made him perceive mr lloyd however was in as great a mistake for when insisting that the rite of baptism by water was to cease when the spiritual administration of christ began he maintained that john the baptist said my baptism shall decrease but his shall increase whereas the words are he must increase but i must decrease footnote john chapter three verse thirty boswell into footnote one of them having objected to the observance of days and months and years johnson answered the church does not superstitiously observe days merely as days but as memorials of important facts christmas might be kept as well upon one day of the year as another but there should be a stated day for commemorating the birth of our saviour because there is danger that what may be done on any day will be neglected he said to me at another time sir the holidays observed by our church are of great use in religion there can be no doubt of this in a limited sense i mean if the number of such consecrated portions of time be not too extensive the excellent mr nelson's festivals and fasts which has i understand the greatest sale of any book ever printed in england except the bible is a most valuable help to devotion Footnote. mr seward anecdotes says that dr johnson always supposed that mr richardson had mr nelson in his thoughts when he delineated the character of sir charles grandison robert nelson was born in sixteen fifty six and died in seventeen fifteen and a footnote and in addition to it i would recommend two sermons on the same subject by mr pott archdeacon of st albans equally distinguished for piety and elegance i am sorry to have it to say that scotland is the only christian country catholic or protestant where the great events of our religion are not solemnly commemorated by its ecclesiastical establishment on days set apart for the purpose mr hector was so good as to accompany me to see the great works of mr bolton at a place which he has called soho about two miles from birmingham which the very ingenious proprietor showed me himself to the best advantage i wish johnson had been with us 
for it was a scene which I should have been glad to contemplate by his light. Footnote. Mr. Arkwright pronounced Johnson to be the only person who, on a first view, understood both the principle and powers of machinery. Johnson's Works, 1787, volume 11, page 215. Arthur Young, who visited Birmingham in 1768, writes, I was nowhere more disappointed than at Birmingham, where I could not gain any intelligence, even of the most common nature, through the excessive jealousy of the manufacturers. It seems the French have carried off several of their fabrics, and thereby injured the town not a little. This makes them so cautious that they will show strangers scarce anything. Tour through the north of England, end of footnote. The vastness and the contrivance of some of the machinery would have matched his mighty mind. And I shall never forget Mr. Bolton's expression to me. I sell here, sir, what all the world desires to have. Power. He had about seven hundred people at work. I contemplated him as an iron chieftain, and he seemed to be a father to his tribe. One of them came to him complaining grievously of his landlord for having distrained his goods. Your landlord is in the right, Smith, said Bolton, but I'll tell you what. Find you a friend who will lay down one half of your rent, and I'll lay down the other half and you shall have your goods again. From Mr. Hector I now learned many particulars of Dr. Johnson's early life, which, with others that he gave me at different times since, have contributed to the formation of this work. Dr. Johnson said to me in the morning, You will see, sir, at Mr. Hector's, his sister, Mrs. Careless, a clergyman's widow. Footnote. Johnson wrote to Mrs. Thrale, year not given, I have passed one day at Birmingham with my old friend Hector, there's a name, and his sister, an old love. My mistress is grown much older than my friend. Oh, quid habe zilius, ilius, quae sperabat amores, quae me supererat mihi. Of her, of her, what now remains, who breathed the loves, who charmed the swains, and snatched me from my heart. Francis Horace Odes, Book 4, Poem 13, 18, Piazzi Letters, End of Footnote. She was the first woman with whom I was in love. It dropped out of my head imperceptibly, but she and I shall always have a kindness for each other. He laughed at the notion that a man never can be really in love but once, and considered it as a mere romantic fancy. When I returned from Mr. Bolton's, Mr. Hector took me to his house, where we found Johnson sitting placidly at tea with his first love, who, though now advanced in years, was a genteel woman, very agreeable and well-bred. Footnote. Some years later he wrote, Mrs. Careless took me under her care and told me when I had tea enough. End of footnote. Johnson lamented to Mr. Hector the state of one of their schoolfellows, Mr. Charles Congrove, a clergyman, which he thus described. 
he obtained i believe considerable preferment in ireland but now lives in london white as a valetudinarian afraid to go into any house but his own he takes a short airing in his post-chase every day he has an elderly woman whom he calls cousin who lives with him and jogs his elbow when his glass has stood too long empty and encourages him in drinking in which he is very willing to be encouraged not that he gets drunk for he is a very pious man but he is always muddy he confesses to one bottle of port every day and he probably drinks more he is quite unsocial his conversation is quite monosyllabical and when at my last visit i asked him what o'clock it was that signal of my departure had so pleasing an effect on him that he sprung up to look at his watch like a greyhound bounding at a hare when johnson took leave of mr hector he said don't grow like congreve nor let me grow like him when you are near me Footnote. johnson in a letter to hector on march the seventh of this year described congreve as very dull, very valetudinary, and very recluse. Willing, I am afraid, to forget the world and content to be forgotten by it, to repose in that sullen sensuality into which men naturally sink who think disease a justification of indulgence, and converse only with those who hope to prosper by indulging them. Infirmity will come, but let us not invite it indulgence will allure us but let us turn resolutely away time cannot always be defeated but let us not yield till we are conquered notes and queries and a footnote when he again talked of mrs careless to-night he seemed to have had his affection revived for he said if i had married her it might have been as happy for me in the same letter he said i hope dear mrs careless is well and now and then does not disdain to mention my name it is happy when a brother and sister live to pass their time at our age together i have nobody to whom i can talk of my first years when i do to lichfield i see the old places but find nobody that enjoyed them with me End of footnote. Possible. Pray, sir, do you not suppose that there are fifty women in the world with any one of whom a man may be as happy as with any one woman in particular? Johnson. I, sir, fifty thousand. Possible. Then, sir, you are not of opinion with some who imagine that certain men and women are made for each other and that they cannot be happy if they miss their counterparts? Johnson. To be sure not, sir. I believe marriages would in general be as happy, and often more so, if they are all made by the Lord Chancellor upon a due consideration of characters and circumstances without the parties having any choice in the matter. I wish to have stayed at Birmingham tonight to have talked more with Mr. Hector, but my friend was impatient to reach his native city, so we drove on that stage in the dark, and were long, pensive, and silent. 
when we came within the focus of the lichfield lamps now said he we are getting out of a state of death we put up at the three crowns not one of the great inns but a good old-fashioned one which was kept by mr wilkins and was the very next house to that in which johnson was born and brought up and which was still his own property Footnote. I went through the house where my illustrious friend was born with a reverence with which it doubtless will long be visited. Boswell. An engraved view of it with the adjacent buildings is in the Gentleman's Magazine for February 1875. End of footnote. We had a comfortable supper and got into high spirits. I felt all my Toryism glow in this old capital of Staffordshire. I could have offered incense, Genio Loki, and I indulged in libations of that ale which Boniface in the Beau Stratagem recommends with such an eloquent jollity. Footnote. The scene of Farquhar's Beau Stratagem is laid in Lichfield. The passage in which the ale is praised begins as follows. Aimwell. I have heard your town of Lichfield much famed for ale. I think I'll taste that. Boniface. Sir, I have now in my cellar ten ton of the best ale in Staffordshire. Tis smooth as oil, sweet as milk, clear as amber, and strong as brandy. And will be just fourteen year old the fifth day of next March, old style. Act one, scene one. End of footnote. End of section sixty three.